to another episode of Racial Equity in Richmond. I am Ebony Walden, your host. And again, this is a project of the Richmond Racial Equity Essays where we're asking Richmonders from all walks of life and in different sectors, what is their vision for racial equity and how do we get here? I'm excited for our two guests today. We're going to be talking about history from two historians and different perspectives, but they're already friends. So we're going to have fun with them. So what do y'all just take a minute or so, introduce yourselves, what's your name, what you do in the daytime, and how long have you been living in our great city of Richmond? Go free. Okay, well, my name is Freebon Gora. Some of you may remember me when my last name was Egun Femi, and those of you who've known me longer will remember that my name was Ma'at Free for many years. Um, I, as you said, am concerned with heritage and history and narrative and the things that people haven't really uh, brought to the front when we were younger. Um, I'm trying to make sure that we don't leave our lives without knowing about the most fabulous and amazing things that Black folks have done and our friends to endeavor for Black freedom here in the Richmond, Virginia area. I run a company called Untold RVA, and that's pretty much what I do during the day. And, and how long have you how long have you been? Oh, yeah. I've been living here for, um, I think it was seven or eight years old when I moved to Richmond. So Richmond is my hometown. I don't remember anything else. All right. Thank you, Free. Go ahead, Bill. Um, Bill Martin. I'm director of the Valentine, and I have been here for 26 years. So I'm the oldest surviving museum director in town, I believe. And there's a reason for being here. You know, I think that the being in a place and finding roots in a place is really important and finding places that you can make a change. And so take, sometimes it takes time. And certainly the Valentine is one of the older museums in the country and certainly one of the oldest in Virginia. And so my role here is, in, is really finding new ways to dig into this story, to find community partners, to work in the community, work in our collections because we have amazing objects here. Uh, so how do we bring people and powerful objects, powerful people, powerful objects together to tell powerful stories? And I'll just say that, that free is one of the critical elements in that has been a great partner and we and and I will you know I know that later on we'll talk about critical moments but I think one of the critical moments for me was actually when Free and I met at an event here uh, a while back and so you know I don't know whether we'll talk about that today but I think it's building friendships that these institutions there are institutions but they're also building that part of what I do in the daytime and I think in the nighttime too is how do we build these relationships in the community that can make a difference. Yeah, I was just out, we were just talking about the Valentine and your um, music on last Sunday, and I enjoyed that. Just just building those connections with the community, get them in the space. So you kind of hit on my first question. I love to, you know, we're going to talk about racial equity, and we're going to talk about your work in your field. But I like to get an idea of 
who are who who it is it that we're talking to? There's so much history that you all bring to this. And I just like to ask guests, like what was a pivotal moment or a pivotal experience in your life that brought you to your current work, right? What's a little bit about your story um, that brought you to the Valentine or brought you to um, doing work at Untold Free and Bill? Whoever wants to start. I mean, I, I would love if we both had an opportunity to describe the same thing from different angles. I think it might kind of turn into that, but let me just say that, um, it was a really interesting day. We were having a community conversation in the Valentine in the basement. And uh, our, all, all of us have a dear friend, Matthew Freeman, um, who at the time was facilitating a conversation about um, what they called it specifically um, was the slave trail. And so that was, I guess, going to bring out certain folks that I've oftentimes seen in terms of advocacy and um, taking care of those spaces when the cameras aren't on, just legacy folks that really cared about the narratives, Black narratives relating to enslavement. So in the, in the uh, basement that day was Anjali and um, Manifest, Brother Duran, and a number of elders. I mean, Beth Marshak was down there. It was like a slam-packed room, right? And this is right on the heels of us hopefully being able, actually it did turn out, but we were able to stop the, the stadium from being built in the Shackle Bottom area. So I remember Matthew kept saying, the slaves, the slaves. And I was sitting there, my ancestors were like bubbling up in my body, my hand shoots up. And I was like, they called my name to say, yes, yes, would you like to speak? And I said, stop calling my ancestors the slaves. Until oh, no, that's not the way it happened. You, we were in the middle of the presentation. You said, stop. And it was one of those moments. <laughs> okay, thanks for the revision. All right, back to the story. So I, being the bull in the china shop that I am, um, did not respect the time period of public commentary. But I do remember my hand shot up and I was like, stop saying that my ancestors are slaves stop referring to them as the slaves. And so Matthew then replies like, whoa, you know, his personality is like, I'm not trying to offend anyone. But he was like, what the Slave Trail Commission calls it the slave, like they call themselves the Slave Trail Commission. I was like, it doesn't matter what they say. I'm telling you that our ancestors do not wish to be referred to as a dehumanizing trait as, it's not that they weren't enslaved, it was that their identity was way more than the slaves. And so um, at the end of it, Bill, someone said, oh, Bill, do you know Free? And he was like, no, we've never met, but we should be friends. And I didn't know that he was the director until he was like, well, my card is out there on the dais. And I got one and it was like the director. I was like, whoa. And so he, he even told me that he had eaten my food when I used to be vegan iron chef back in those days. Then about a week later, we decided to have lunch and he brought me to um, the Valentine and we had the most beautiful, unlikely friendship bloomed from that day. And um, he just told me about uh, Josh Epperson and doing Feast, which is like a startup competition. And I brought my idea for being able to do hidden history in a way that was accessible to everyday Richmonders where they wouldn't have to read in order to know. And it would really pull on the city infrastructure as a canvas and bold typography. Um, and so I submitted to a to um, present at Feast. And because Bill took me and, and uh, Josh to supper at Garnett's that day, and we became friends, all three of us. And the next thing you know, Anjali was there to turn my paycheck, Kucha slides 
for a feast and um I won. And wow. so it was just amazing. <laughs> so like from that day I think what really pivotally made me actually go specifically into this work as my um nine to five because before that I was just always taking care of the ancestors, always down at the burial ground, protesting and doing things off camera um, to take care of our ancestral memories. But it wasn't until that year that we actually had the first um, TEDx and Bill was presenting some information about some beautiful assets that the museum had um, reclaimed from some collector somewhere of this black woman who's the oldest um, portrait of a black woman surviving in the United States from the slavery days. And he said my name from the stage at TEDx. And then the next thing you know, Susan Winecki and all these reporters are like, why did the illustrious Bill Martin call your name? And so he was like, no, she's a historian. And so that was when I think I began, I began to see myself as an essential part of this mainstream work. And I knew that I couldn't stay, not so much in the shadows, but I couldn't be untold myself and tell these untold narratives in a very effective way. I love that. I love that connection too. I didn't, I kind of knew a piece of that story, but thank you so much for the fullness. And I think Bill, like- Yeah, and, and I think that that's, I mean, that's part of this is that, you know, oh, we've been friends for a long time. We, we, you know, we have active discussions. We sometimes disagree, but we know that the intent of, of where we want to be when it's done. And I know that's one of our questions is, you know, sort of where do we see the world going and what can we do? I think that's part of this, you know, that it's building these relationships long term and seeing where they go. And I think that if you ask where did what were there moments for me, there's always been there's been someone who inspires me throughout. You know, I'm I'm a little older than than free. So, you know, there have been these moments in my life where I can identify people that, you know, were outside of my world that I should but that suddenly became a part of my world for a reason. And so whether it was my job in Petersburg or whether it was my job in Jacksonville, Florida Museum there, there are always these people that sort of, I am, I am the luckiest person in the world because I have, you know, these things appear in my life for reasons. And you just, you, you just listen to what, is being brought to you throughout your life. And it just happens if you're open, if you're open to making yourself uncomfortable. Mm. Um, you know, I have this whole thing that, that, that we ought to make ourselves uncomfortable at least once a week. Mm, I like that. Because we all live in, all of us live in such privilege mm. um, to be able to do the things that we do. And so making yourself uncomfortable every day is, is sort of, I try to, I mean, at this point it's once a week, but, you know, going to an event that you're not, you're not necessarily invited to being in rooms where you're not invited necessarily, you know, you know, it's a public event, but you're not invited necessarily personally, just doing those things and being present to listen. Yeah. I love that. I think, and I think what you both highlight are just the, just how different people touch your lives. Right. And how we can all use our privilege for gatekeepers to open gates, to open mm -hmm. doors for other people. And as we're talking about uh, racial equity, equity allyship is a huge part of that, right? And part of free story is, is Bill, you really being 
an ally to, to have her story be untold, right? And, and to tell other stories that have been untold as part of Richmond's history, right? In our community. And, and I know that that's one of the questions about what's missing, you know, what, what, what work needs to be done. And I think that in our community, it's really one of the, the important things we need to do is listen to community voices, to, to people who have direct experience on the ground with this history, um, that's one of the things that's extremely important is that it's not just people that are sitting in offices and museums, that there are a lot of people that are doing this work in the community that, that are that are creating, uh, this, that are coming, that are really doing the kinds of research that bring these stories to the forefront that, you know, museums don't traditionally do and listening to those voices. And I, and I think making sure that all those voices, there's a diversity of those voices. That this is, you know, that there are bits and pieces of Richmond's history that are right there. Um, and one of the examples that I always use is that we do a tour in Barton Heights, and I got a, someone walked up uh, to the museum here and and said, "I need to talk to Bill Martin," and I brought him. They they brought him over, and he says, "You're not telling the whole story about my neighborhood." I'm going, "Okay, so what am I not telling about Barton Heights?" And he says, "You know that." That, that that neighborhood was called Little Italy. And I didn't know, I mean, the story that we know about that neighborhood is very different, but that was a neighborhood that was where Italian immigrants, when they came to Richmond, were, were not allowed really to find places in the Richmond, in the city, but went to what was then how, you know, was Sinrico County because they couldn't live in the city. Mm. I mean, just being open to those stories yeah. Is, is something. And then, of course, for the Valentine, the thing that, that we're missing, and I think everyone is, we need to make sure that within our staff and our boards and all the folks that, that are associated, that we begin to make sure that we walk, we we try to do the best, the best job we can in making sure those voices are not just being listened to, but are also included on the inside, making sure that we're a board member or a staff member. And so working at that is really important for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to, and, and you've hit on it, uh, Bill, would love for you to comment free on, what do you feel like the role that history plays in advancing racial equity, right? Of like, Richmond is such a historically rich city. We've had so many conversations about the monuments, free, you're telling these untold stories all around Richmond and bringing them. I love Gabriel Week. You know, what's the role of history in helping us advance racial equity, particularly in Richmond? Well, you know, it really all depends on the perspective that you're speaking from, because even as you all graciously acknowledge me as being an independent historical strategist, and I'm so grateful that you all embraced that when I put that on the back of my business card 12 years ago, um, and now, you know, it's this thing, but it really all depends on who you're talking to. Hmm. Um, I think for me, because in 2019, I endeavored to really make a deep dive and a concerted effort to determine where specifically my ancestry was coming from before enslavement. And I felt like that part of the story can be so empowering to folks. And so when you ask, you know, what can we do to advance racial e equity with history specifically, I think those that have been keeping the ball in play and challenging um, these narratives to become more expansive and more embracing and celebratory of the stories that happened before the um, the blight of slavery took over the city. Um, it, it's like 
people have to have the resources to be able to go back to where their ancestors came from. And I think that that piece is really the critical moment of how we can begin to use history to dig us out of this. Um, Black folks that are interested in contributing to the historical record being more balanced also deserve time to do healing. And as you hear Bill speak to the fact that he really keeps himself humble by making sure that he has opportunities to be uncomfortable every week, at least once a week, I have the opposite philosophy because I feel like I'm speaking from the opposite perspective of that same coin. So Mm -hmm. I insist to myself that I make myself comfortable six out of seven days. There's a a $1,400 mattress that vibrates that I sleep on every night because of the strain of having to push against systemic Mm -hmm. inequity that we were born in and there's no longevity. And I'll tell you who really solidified this. Um, Angela Davis came to Africana Independent Film Festival, remember at the MFA? Mm -hmm. And at the very end, someone asked, and I'll never forget this question, this young woman um, from BCU, black black young woman asked her, um, you know, what would you tell your younger self um, now as you've, you know, grown to be an elder for all of us. And she said, I only wish that we had been more concerned with longevity and sustainability because they didn't provide for their own dental work. Everything was give it away, give it away. They um, had a lot of people drop off from the movement because they burnt out. They needed to get jobs and they, you know, just went so hard that they didn't preserve. Um, There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go, um, fast, you go by yourself, but if you want to go far, you go with others. And I will say, you know, that you can add to that, that you really need to take care of yourself during your journey, whether you're alone or with others. And so, um, yes, I think that the one thing that's going to help us be able to incorporate historical narratives into um, dismantling the racial inequity in Richmond, Virginia, is that those who have been keeping the ball in play all this time and have been doing this for the love but not the money need to be placed in a situation where we don't have to be competitive for um, resources like you may find in the grant-making community, but that there should be those that are picking up phone call and saying, look, we've done a very, very um, surface investigation to see that you've been in place doing this with no resources, not even as a nonprofit, and here is $10,000 for you to be able to give away to whoever you see that's at the cutting edge so that you can become an elder and a gatekeeper yourself, and then here goes another $10,000 for you to just be able to go on vacation and take your children in release some of the last maybe 15 or 20 years worth of angst that we've had to endure. Because right now, if you look at it, this um, racial narrative and equity piece is becoming more mainstream. But there's those of us that have been doing this for so long that at the very moment that it's now um, something that is not a shame or something that is not a fight, um, and national funders are coming to be able to invest in our city's opportunity to be able to pull these narratives to the surface. A lot of us are so tired that we can't even muster the strength to apply for a grant. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right, Frey. I think that, you know, there is this fatigue with our history. Yeah. That's, that's settled in. And we, we, it's a place where you can find your energy and truth, but it also is exhausting. Um, so there's this there's this strange mixture that goes on because I don't think we can actually understand where we are today 
without understanding the racial dynamics of this city and this country and really this world, you know, without understanding that, we really can't get at the work that needs to be done. And I think when you look at the history of Richmond in particular and the, the, the central role that the slave trade played, and, and yet at the same time, and, and you know, Free and I talk about this, we talk about it a lot, is in spite of or in, in defiance of those institutions, people pushed back. And so against the institution of slavery, you see people like Gabriel and others. You know, no matter what the situation is, so if you take it into the 20th century against you know, Jim Crow Richmond, you had Maggie Walker and others creating Black success, you know, and I, I really do credit Free for sort of, you know, I think that we, as we think about this narrative that for the city, we also, we need to, to look at the lost lasting impact, but also look at people and families and businesses that resisted against those things, those systemic issues in the community that against it all succeeded. And why you know, why did that happen? Because how do you get over the legacy of enslavement in a city? How do you get the, the get over the fact that between three and fifteen, five hundred thousand people were sold out of the market just down the hill from the governor's mansion? Right. That's you know, like the thing that people don't realize. Oh, Phil, I didn't mean to cut across. I just wanted to, you know, just share with folks that they really need to understand that when that becomes your work, in a time such as what we've just rolled out of um, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, those of us who have been doing this excavation work, let's just center it around the emergence of the Trail of Enslaved Africans in Richmond. That, Bill, what was that, like the early 90s or so? Yeah, it was, and, 25, it's really just been, it's really 25 years ago. Yes, and there's there's so much advocacy that went into excavating yeah. that narrative and making sure that it was equitably presented. And um, I will just say that it is not easy to work and do that for 25 years without a paycheck. And a lot of people have been in that situation because it wasn't like the Valentine was hiring to um, push against their own systemic, um, you know, strategic plan of how they wanted to roll out history um, and about who. So I just, it's very important to understand that it can be toxic to have to read about your ancestors being whipped and tortured over and over and over and over again. Um, I want to wait until the next question to say what I was about to say. Oh, so. man, I was like on the, on the edge of my seat. Yeah, man, that's, what, that, that, that's what we do. We're, 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 we're the team. So when I had, you know, my other question, which we can, we can, we're, we're, um, we can transition, but what I hear you all saying was obviously highlighting the need to highlight our diversity of narratives, but, but Free, what I really hear you saying is making sure there's funding for people to, to do that for the legwork, for the longevity of it, for their own mental and physical health. Well, you know, one of my colleagues said free labor is what us, what got us into this, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's really it. And That's really it. And so the thing is, is a person like Bill, who every year since I've been doing Gabriel Week, which is what, 2018, I think I began doing it, has always set aside a portion of his provisional director's budget at the Valentine to make sure that there is a day during Gabriel Week that I don't have to worry about a thing and I can get past whatever 
seven days. I mean, seven days of programming and not being a nonprofit mm-hmm. means that you're paying for that stuff out of your pocket and at the you know assistance of your generous friends and colleagues that are willing to do things you know that normally aren't going to be done. And so I just I think it's very important to note that not only do we have deliberately submerged narratives that need to be excavated for bringing equity to the historical record. But we also have to tackle the fact that though the reason why those things have been deliberately submerged is because the mainstream preservation community has done things to silence voices who have been struggling to have these things brought forward the entire time. And so and if no one is there... And, and even more offensively, I mean, and even more is institutions who have intentionally created this narrative. Mm-hmm. When we look at many of which, including the Valentine, these institutions in the 1890s not only were, were, were actually creating this narrative of the lost cause that said that enslaved people were happy, you know, that all, you know, that there were cavaliers and happy folks and creating all of these images that sustained a story that wasn't supported by the actual stories of the, of the folks from that period. And so this, this notion of not only were our institutions not were the edges, these institutions were actively engaged in subverting those stories. Now, who do you think would be responsible if those who have been, as I often say, keeping the ball in play, that's a Dr. Uh, Tiffany Jana phrase, keeping the ball in play. Um, But for those who have been keeping the ball in play since the emergence of the Trail of Enslaved Africans 25 years ago, who do you think would be the ones that would make sure that you don't know who's in that fight? These are the people that are gonna be in this 25 years in history. When we're at the year 2099, people will be talking about the 25 years that surround the monuments coming down. surround the African burial ground being liberated in different areas and Jackson Ward raising up. Somebody is responsible in this city for making it most difficult for a person like myself Mm -hmm. to have to fight against this. It has not been easy. And so it's really important that we take time and realize that the people who have been excavating the history will be the history of the future. Mm-hmm. And that we are resisting the same way that Gabriel resisted. And we are inspiring those to pull down the monuments. I mean, before the monuments came down, I was saying these things about tearing the monuments down to these youngins who turn around and did exactly what I told them to do. Yeah. But no one knows that that's where it came from is the, you know? Yeah, so, and there were people saying all of these things before this particular moment, right? So now it's like you said, it's, fashionable and in vogue to say those things, but the- the, the Improbable. People, right, Bork was saying that. So I want to, you, you all are highlighting lots of different things about inequities, right? So who voice has been heard, who has been funded to do the work, whether that's people or institutions, who's highlighted, like, as you said, this kind of lost cause narrative and how we're in a time of shifting that narrative and hopefully shifting funding and resources. So one sentence for the first part, and then you can elaborate what's your vision for racial equity enrichment as it relates to history? And like, how do you propose that we get there? What are a couple of things you think we can do um, either as uh, historians or as folks that live and love Richmond? I've got one. So freedom is not free. And I say freedom is not free because it's going to take 
a great deal of resources for those who are endeavoring freedom. That's a very, very bold statement to say that your work is to endeavor for black freedom. That's not the same as saying, oh, my work is racial equity and all these other things. To be very specific and say that your work is to support black freedom. You don't even have to be black to say that. And so knowing that freedom is not free means that resources have to be liberated and they're not going to come at invitation all the time. So the harder you have to dig it out of the mud, really the more pure and authentic that voice is going to be because it's, it has no um, expectation to make friends. It just simply gives facts and speaks truth. And so for me, freedom is not free. There's got to be monetizable um, uh, resources that can be derived outside of the nonprofit industrial complex. People need to be able to look at this work as something that um, they look at as a B corporation model or something as a social innovation or a social entrepreneurship. And we have a lot of different ways of looking at that, but um, there's been a lot of work in, in that area that I've done. As the founder of the International Commemorative Justice Movement, I am one that postulates all over the world strategies to help People like myself, which I call portal keepers, those that are keeping these narratives from a very authentic, spiritual, um, ancestrally guided position, and that these individuals deserve to have resources to keep a balance so the only rich ones in the dialogue should not just be these institutions that really are responsible for creating the problems to begin with. So that leverage is important to make sure that everyone has fair and equal um opportunity to receive resources. And the best way to do that, I think, is to be able to get paid for your brilliance and your um, innovative strategies. Um, if you can monetize the things that you're learning here in Richmond as a contributor to Black freedom, then maybe Sandusky, Ohio and Detroit and uh, Puerto Rico will be interested in having you come and you can take those resources back to Richmond and do more independent historical work. I love that the spirit of creativity and innovation, but monetizing that for to benefit people that are continuing the work really right. from, from an on the ground perspective, right? So we need that's right innovation, fun, funding innovation, right? We need to do things yeah. in a different way. I love that. What what about you, Bill? So you know, mine is going to be sort of more practical in terms of like this whole thing. It's like you know, for me. Equity enrichment means that every child in this city can reach their potential and that they have the, the, the place, that, the home that they feel secure. They have the educational opportunities, the health opportunities, the social support opportunities that will guarantee every child's success. You know, if we if we start at that is that is focused on that child and making sure that there's that their life that we are assuring them that there that there will be success and that success can be defined in a lot of different ways. And to get there, I think um, we need to, to do we have to do some stuff to get there. And I think that everybody that's involved in this work has still so much personal work to do. Mm -hmm. is that that you know one of the things that one of the reasons you get tired in this is that we forget there's still the ongoing personal work that everyone needs to do to find their strength to find their inspiration to find their solace 
uh, to breathe. And I think that we we often forget it's all that we it's not all about that public work. Right. To be, I think that that for us to achieve the kind of equity we want in the community, we first have to understand what it means, what those words mean for ourselves. That's right. With our own, and and, I, and the, the second thing, because I know you asked for three things that you know, whatever, the, the, is actually once you do that, don't stay home, don't stay in behind your screen, but get in, you know, but go out in the community and do some work. You know, find find folks that are doing work that you have passion about, and do it. You know, put your body into it because it's there's it's really simple to stay at home. But it's put your body into the work, whatever that might be, cleaning a cemetery, working in a school, being a volunteer, um, finding places where you can make money around your passion uh, and understanding that. And then, you know, it gets back to Freeze's uh, notion is that, that, you know, if you have the resources, whatever you have, be prepared to give those resources, to share the resources that we've all been given to make change in the community. That one of the things that is a vision for me is that all of us should be, we're all fairly privileged people. And the question is how are we taking both our, our emotional resources, our intellectual resources, but also our financial resources, and how do we leverage those in the community wherever we are? You know, whether we're in a foundation or a museum or putting together the family budget, you know, all of us have these little places where we can put the resources that we need to. Equity is about providing, is about sharing personal resources and community resources. It can't happen without it. Right. One question, and then we'll close, because I think that I love what you were saying, Bill, but, and, not but, and I just, just love you all to think or to, to, quickly kind of talk about what does it mean to be an ally in this work, right? So so let's put out the obvious bill. You're an older white man and an institution. Really? <laughs> where, where, where some people th some people think, right, that if you're doing racial equity work, that's not friendly to people that look like you. So how do you see your role or or role of folks like you in this narrative? And then maybe for free from your perspective, what does it mean for white folks that are in power and in institutions to be allies? You know, it's always been start with listening. And that, you know, we come into our lives, I mean, particularly old white guys like me have a certain sense of their place or what they think is their place. And the notion of pulling back from that assumed identity, allowing yourself to be weak, aware, allowing yourself to listen, and allowing yourself to just be in that moment with another person. Does that mean that it's always going to be comfortable for you or the other person? I think, you know, I think that, you know, when you're we're, when you're in doing this work, you're gonna you're you're gonna have disagreements, and you're gonna go off into the corner, and and you're gonna be angry, and you're gonna be joyful, but there's gonna be the, all those moments. But it's it's being putting all that stuff that you bring and trying to put it behind you to do the work that you need to do, 
and you know understanding that you that no one has the answers is that the answer is looking at the community and looking at each other and saying what can we get up and do today to make it different thank you your thoughts on allyship and um free well first of all i've never seen bill angry in my life and i can't even imagine what angry to him looks like except he probably most of those times when we're like why did bill just leave and he always says, well, I just have to go to the restroom. Maybe he's being angry at that moment. I don't know. But I think having that kind of um, spirit of someone who can absorb with humility other people's frustration and not project it back and have to speak from how, well, that made me feel this way. You know, everyone nowadays has to let you know how they feel and all of that, you know, stuff that you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't come from that era. I come from the area where, like, you know, tough kitty said the cat to the kitty because the milk tastes wild, child. That's like, nobody cared what we thought. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's beautiful to hear him. I just really wanted to take time and say how beautiful I think it was for him to speak to how important it is to receive people's angst and not respond back and to re allow people to unload on you maybe sometimes because they look at you as a perceived one who caused all this trouble especially as a director so if we're speaking to right now an audience of those who have um, more privilege and we're saying uh, how allyship and um, those things can um, be a benefit when done properly um, I will just say that one of the best things that you can do is to find a way to make someone who seems the most passionate in the room when the issue is being discussed, find a way for them to be able to have comfort the next day. If it means that you just say, you know, I know Facebook at the bottom, it has a thing where you can send somebody like a $15 gift card to like, you know, Starbucks or wherever. I mean, it's not a lot of money, but the fact that you let someone know that they're comfort and their healing is important to you because you recognize that we're here talking about something of um, hurt. These narratives and racial equity is connected to violence and, and, and trauma and a lot of um, emotions I have no idea how to work through. But that is the reason why I switched Untold RVA to make a new um, pivot for 2021 as Gabriel Week is, is coming forward. I've switched from the notion of using Untold RV as a platform to unearth trauma narratives to now using Untold RVA as a platform to promote the notion of the most powerful imagination space on planet Earth that our ancestors were imagining the world that we're living in right now because they knew that that's all they had and the imagination is super duper free. And so if you're an ally um, worth your weight in gold, then you would find ways to give people a more comfortable space to imagine the future in. If you can do no more than that, just make sure that something is comfortable and something is um, restorative to the way our spirits have been so downtrodden from hearing of all the terrible things that our ancestors have endured and the things that we have to endure outside of the room when we leave and the microaggressions that we endure every day from pushing against the systemic inequity within the historical uh, landscape here in Richmond, Virginia, it's because it is not easy. 
even when we come out to speak and share things, there's people in the audience that will snarl and look at you with hatred. And that's real. And so as an ally, just do all you can to make people have a moment of feeling like their healing is top priority and happiness is at the top of the goal sheet for the day. And to understand right up front that you will, you cannot, because of you know where you start life, can't to ever, you can't ever understand the impact of those experiences that someone else has had. I think that that's, that's it's key is that you don't you you know where you are, you know where you came from, you know how your family, and you know those histories, but you can never put yourself. You can never experience um, the trauma and the joy that someone else's family has experienced. And you bring- It's true, like you come into the room on the brink of tears a lot of times when these things are being discussed and people are talking about legislating it or you know, um, examining it or dialoguing about it or workshopping or you know, even having a charrette about something that literally happened to your family and is happening currently to your Mm. person at the moment and so he's very right you can never imagine what that um is like for another person but as long as you give a person the um look that i know this is not easy for you what can i do to make sure that you stay in the room and stay strong and feel supported in this moment worth its weight in gold i love that well, I don't, and I love that, and I think we have to transition to 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 closing. But I love the the ending on this imaginative space, imaginative space, this spaces for for healing and comfort. But I also think the flip side, right? You all come from two different perspectives. Bill's talking about creating space in your life for discomfort, and you're like for for folks that have experienced this trauma. Um, over history, right, to creating spaces of comfort. And I love the, the imaginative, right? Because that looks towards the future, right? And so how can history teach us something? Sure. And then we can create a, a future that is different, right? So hopefully we can learn. We have to have both. Right? We have to have discomfort and joy. I mean, there's, and, and that sort of schizophrenic emotion that we have to have, because that's the risk. hold them both. Yeah, that, that, you, I know that's right. Yeah, the history of, of Richmond is schizophrenic. Mm. And that's right. so to we need to, to acknowledge all of our dysfunction and understand the power of what we can do with that. Absolutely. That's right. Well, well in these spaces to hold both of these things, right? Hold comfort <laughs> and discomfort, right? Hold history mm -hmm. and the, the, the trauma and tragedy of that, but the future that is imaginative and creative and innovation and innovative and then acknowledging the, the creativity and innovation that came from the resilience of people moving through that uh, to where we are and we'll be points of history at some point in our life. So how can we put our creativity and stamp on this place and this time in our work? So I love that. I think those are great sort of ending points. I just want to thank you both for coming and speaking your truth today. I love your dynamic friendship to, to have both of you on today. This has been a wonderful time. Thank you all for joining us again on Racial Equity in Richmond, where we ask Richmonders from all walks of life to, to offer up their vision for racial equity in Richmond, as well as solutions to how we get, how we get there. Thank you, Bill and Free, and we will see you all soon. Bye-bye. 
I got it.